0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, October 26, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. Some strains of the new right, for lack of a better term, are profoundly illiberal. They call themselves conservatives while rejecting a broad range of principles that have made America great. Tolerance, free markets, and notably religious pluralism. Kevin Vallier's new book is All the Kingdoms of the World, where he critiques Catholic integralism and other anti-liberal religious ideas we spoke last month with uh, some apology to longtime listeners we're going to be using the word liberal and liberalism liberally throughout this discussion so in the modern american context we're used to using that word differently than a, a lot of people do certainly how academics use that word so when we say liberalism what are we talking about
1: well i think of liberalism as encompassing kind of four political principles, ones that tell us how government should operate or be structured. The first is the protection of individual and group liberties against interference from government or powerful economic organizations, large corporations. Equality, basically the idea is whatever rights we have, we have them the same. Some kind of principle of toleration, typically applied at least to religion. But also perhaps to secular doctrines and a kind of principle of mutual advantage. To be a liberal was to look for positive sum games or win-wins, where other ideologies try to uh divide people
0: up into friend and enemy. Can we say anything with confidence about religious people and general attitudes to toward liberalism?
1: I mean, it's very hard to say much of anything except because of the diversity of religions and even the diversity of manifestations uh, of liberalism. I mean, there often, though, have been seen to be tensions. And the main reason for this is liberalism's skepticism of established religion. Uh, even though you know many liberals have been religious, they've not wanted any one faith to be coercively established. It's pretty much universal in the tradition. And some of them have gone further. So they've thought, okay, look, fanaticism of any kind is bad. Perhaps we need to keep religion out of the public square entirely. So that's where the tensions arise.
0: All right. So there's no shortage of in history of people trying to mix politics and religion. That's right. And perhaps the you know latter half of the 20th century was, uh, relatively speaking, a bit of a golden age uh, with respect to uh, toleration. Uh, so. Um, with specific respect to the arguments that you make in your book, you say that you know the, these arguments uh, represent a strain of thinking that is long-standing, and of course you're talking about what's known as integralism, Catholic integralism in particular. What are some of the arguments that are presented that we ought to take seriously, and what are your responses? So what I'm looking at
1: in the book is the revival of a series of movements around the globe uh, that I call religious anti-liberalisms. So these are religious oppositions to sort of core uh, liberal tenets. I focus on the Catholic case because that's the one most familiar to my readers, but I also extend it to Chinese Confucianism and Sunni Islam. So, what unites these doctrines is usually a rejection of the liberal principle of universal religious toleration, the belief in a sort of global or, sorry, rather governmental or national state establishment of religion, and not something relatively toothless like the Anglican Church in England, uh, but something a little bit more like what we see in a variety of uh, Islamic regimes. Um, they also tend to believe that the legitimacy of government does not come from the people, or at least not first and foremost, but it comes from the divine in some respect or another, God, Allah, heaven and its mandate, and so on. Their main arguments against liberalism are pretty straightforward, and actually there's a great deal of convergence across the different religions. The first is that liberal neutrality is a lie, um, and liberal neutrality is a kind of extension of the principle of toleration. It says, look, uh, government really shouldn't be picking winners and losers when it comes to religion or irreligion. Uh, and so government should try far as it can to be even-handed or fair to different points of view. It should try to treat Jews and Christians as equals. should try to treat Muslims, Jews and Christians and atheists as equals and so on. And the chief kind of anti-liberal religious, and anti-liberal claim is that, you know, this is a lie. And in fact, it's an incoherent ideal because, you know, governments have to take a controversial perspective no matter what they do. And and I think the big issue here is that there's a kind of analyzing neutrality at its most extreme form, which is that you have to be absolutely neutral among everything, and then to say, okay, well, I can't do that, so it must be bogus as a principle. But that's, that's not a very compelling argument, right? I mean, yes, we can't have perfect liberty or perfect equality or perfect virtue or perfect piety, but that doesn't mean those aren't reasonable standards. The way I like to think about neutrality is that we build it over time together, we start off, for instance, with toleration among Protestant groups uh, in England. We grow to include Catholics uh, and then Jews. And now we're trying to knit uh, non-believers into that fabric of toleration. Um, but we're not starting off with the idea that we, the state must be absolutely neutral in principle. We're building neutrality from the inside out, trying to figure out how it works. And I actually think in the United States, we've done a pretty good job at it, better than almost any country ever. So that's one of their arguments. Another one is that liberalism kind of worships uh, the individual and individual liberty um, at the expense of other values and things that matter, like community or sort of the natural order broadly. And I mean, I think this applies to some versions of liberalism, but unfortunately for the the anti-liberal, there are many versions of liberalism. And some are much more focused on responding to certain kinds of oppression or threats to equality in historical time. They're really concerned. I think liberal movements come up with the exercise of arbitrary uh, concentrated power. So, you know, first we see the opposition to absolute monarchy, the attempt, attempt to create constitutional monarchy, the attempts to con- support parliament, constitutional rule of law, maybe against having a monarch at all, the removal of aristocratic privileges and, uh, and those abuses, the ending of slavery, the liberation of women, the universe, universal suffrage. The expansion of markets against sort of corrupt uh, mercantilist policies, and for many left liberals, uh, the expansion of the welfare state. These are all attempts, I think, to respond to the worries about particular kinds of oppression and inequality. Um, And I don't think there's in the background a single sort of idol of autonomy that's that's being worshipped. You know, that's it's almost as if for them all liberalisms are just the French Revolution
0: or something. So when integralists argue on behalf of what they want, at least in the context of when they show up in Washington, D.C. and make a pitch, especially when, it, when they boil it down to some sort of specific policy agenda, it strikes me that a lot of these folks really haven't thought very hard about it.
1: Yeah. I mean, my view is that actually they're keeping their most uh, radical views quiet, and so they kind of test the waters, see what will fly and what won't. So the Catholic integralist position is just a kind of Catholic anti-liberalism. And it's, it's roughly the view that the Vatican, the Pope, and, and his bishops should have a kind of indirect power uh, over the state in matters uh, spiritual or religious. So they could restrict religious liberty in many cases. They could restrict, say, the proliferation of uh, quote-unquote heretical books, of apostasy that is leaving the faith, grave sin, and so on. It's not your standard Catholic conservatism in terms of banning abortion and euthanasia or what have you. It's, it's, it's sort of 200 proof of that. And so, you know, when, the, when they do present their views, they'll say things like, well, let's ban all pornography or let's ban same-sex marriage or sodomy. Um, let's uh, ban abortion by executive order. They've been floating that one um, all over the country. And a host of other issues like promoting cultural Christianity, uh, blue laws, blasphemy laws. So periodically, again, they'll test the waters to see kind of what sticks um, and then kind of back off if, if, if something does it. But um, it's pretty clear from my research and interviews and so on that uh, many of them, the ones in the United States uh, anyway, have a, a pretty radical political, a shockingly radical political
0: ideal. Where do the Catholic integralists fit in To contemporary American politics, because so much of this that I can recall hearing about, often from my friend Stephanie Slade at at Reason, who's who's detailed, who's been on this uh, beat for uh, quite a while, she's wonderful. Has been arguments that are made from exile, in a sense. That is, these people aren't in power. Uh, They've recently lost power. The argument has been for, at least recently, that when we rebuild this movement broadly on the right wing, that it will be more in line with what we are thinking. We want to be those who are directing the, for lack of a better term, the conservative movement.
1: Yeah, that's right. So um, one of the things that sort of happened in 2016 is that... um, Trump kind of gave people permission, uh, certain kind of small radical groups on the right to uh, rapidly expand and kind of put themselves out there. And a number of groups did this, but the integralists were the ones that were the most obscure, but also in many ways grew the most quickly because they had a kind of intellectual appeal that um, the other groups did not. And that's in part because, you know, their view was the view in the Catholic Church and most of its philosophers, you know, for centuries Um, So they have a lineage to draw on. The rough way in which these groups all came into discussion, the thought was that the right keeps losing the culture war because they keep putting culture ahead of politics. But what we need to think, this is their view, not mine, that we need to use politics to win the culture war. If we can take over the state and force our particular sort of morality, um, then we can move the culture in, in our direction. So this is the kind of thing that you hear, say, from someone like DeSantis implicitly, but you hear on the new right generally. But what made the Integralists unique is they offered the people that had this view a kind of, you know, religious worldview, kind of piety, uh, and a variety of the benefits to people that come from from that, Um, and also offered people a kind of intellectual framework um, that was already there, you know, from figures like Saint Thomas Aquinas uh, for a very long time, and they could paint an alternative ideal. Um, It's kind of like libertarianism is with respect to the Reagan right, right, is that you you could paint this radical ideal, you can reason about it in great detail, and so it starts to appeal uh, to young people. So yeah, there's this general sense used politics to win the culture war. This is why the integralists are so heavily connected, say, with Hungarian, uh, well, with, with Viktor Orban. And so, you know, normalizing those kinds of tactics like curriculum controls and so on within the Republican Party, trying to spread kind of more European, illiberal conservative ideals and to defeat traditional American conservative ideals.
0: So to the extent that Catholic integralists, and we should understand this more broadly, this is just the example that you have, uh, have, have taken to task, there doesn't seem to be a great amount of respect for even the most core institutions that the broad American public regards highly, like the rule of law?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's an interesting kind of philosophical, theological, political point here, which is that politics should be aimed at the ultimate good. And so all the kind of procedures that we have, like things like the rule of law uh, or democracy, these are things that can that are only useful instrumentally. There's nothing sort of intrinsically good about them. If they lead to good outcomes, well, good. If they lead to bad outcomes, well, you know, that's bad. So much of their jurisprudence, their philosophy is extremely results-oriented, right? Does the procedure get us where we want to go or not? And so the concern for the intrinsic fairness of these institutions is, is practically absent because everything they're focused on is their goals. Um, and so, you know, you take Harvard Law Professor Adrian Vermeules, in many ways a leader of the movement here, developing his alternative uh, judicial interpretation, common good constitutionalism, which says that essentially uh, jurisprudence should be less aimed at understanding the plain meaning of the text, say, of the Constitution, and more aimed at interpreting certain kinds of ambiguities or unclarities in light of a conception of the common good, one of which he thinks is obvious to reason, even though, of course, in the real world, we all disagree about what the common good consists in.
0: And you've written elsewhere that institutions like the rule of law, I mentioned that one for a reason, it's very hard to have trust in society without it.
1: That's, that's right. That's right. That's what a lot of my work has been on and what led into this project is that you know, my concern about falling trust and rising polarization in the United States had led me to revive an old interest of mine in uh, religious opposition to liberalism because it started to bloom. Um, and I think it was because younger people were raised in these low trust, um, high polarization environments. The advantage, I argue, in my previous books of, of liberal institutions is that they allow diverse people to trust one another. You say, look, there's a procedure that we regard as fair, even though we disagree. And the ru- things like the rule of law, things like uh, democracy are ways of saying, OK, look, um, we're never going to agree. But here's a procedure for at least temporarily resolving our disagreements that allows us to sort of get on with life. And we're not always going to win. And part of being, you know, endorsing constitutional law, part of endorsing democracy is that you sometimes have to be a good loser. And, you know, a lot of these folks have a kind of Trumpian mindset in which you want to win, win, win. Right. Um, And so there's no respect for your opponent as an adversary. You know, they're, they're just pure enemies. And one of the appeals of this view is they're proposing ways to destroy the left entirely to replace them as a civilizational elite in the same way, say, that the Ottomans replaced the Byzantines. It's very, it's very, very
0: radical. Is there any credence given to the possibility that the religious institutions to which uh, many of these folks claim fealty is, would itself be corrupted by the process of a results-oriented uh, jurisprudence uh, that was rooted in Uh, ideological, uh, not ideological, but religious commitment. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing here is that you would think they'd have a lot to say about this, um, but they don't.
1: And I think what they think is, look, um, liberals just assert that when you give the church a lot of power, it's bad, Um, and they don't really have evidence for that. So we'll just we'll just proceed on ahead at full steam. But in terms of any systematic explanation of you know how you would resist abuses, um, what the abuses even were, uh, and so on, um. There's almost no reflection on this, at least in the open at all, among the American integralists sort of engaged in a plow play. There are other integralist groups that are more kind of focused on theory and church renewal, and, and, and they've had a bit more to say. Um, but these groups aren't really in regular uh, communication um, for interesting reasons.
0: Why do you think that is?
1: Oh, well, there's a couple. One is that the American integralists, I think, their view is you never criticize the hierarchy, no matter what it does, really, it's insubordination. But I think there's also a, um, a strategic consideration, which is that uh, France's kind of last integralist movement, or quasi-integralist movement, Axiom Francais, um, was condemned almost 100 years ago by Pope Pius XI. And they don't want to get condemned, and they think if they back the hierarchy that that's the best way to go. But many of the British integralists, for instance, like a really excellent, highly regarded philosophical historian and philosopher Thomas Pink, he's been spending a lot of time trying to explain, well, you know, how can we criticize Pope Francis in a way that is pious and respectful? Why sometimes does piety require us to criticize Francis? Because he's really worried about Francis's effect on the church. Um, And the American Integralists, you know, they won't even touch this stuff. Um, And so because the British Integralists are much more willing to be critical of the hierarchy and, you know, the American Integralists tend to just you know, stay quiet about them. And another difference is British integrals really like to answer questions about, about their views, um, even sort of, you know, in their most radical forms. Americans tend to avoid uh, rich intellectual discussion um, about their about their positive views. And I think they want to hide them because they want power.
0: I can understand in a, a broad cultural shift, you know, we've seen there have been many of these in U.S. history where there were... You know the world was unrecognizable twenty to twenty thirty years after some pivotal event, uh, and I can understand people with a religious commitment feeling that they are losing something in that uh, cultural transition, in that change. Uh, but I suppose I I just don't understand what the realistic view is of, in a sense, putting the genie back in the bottle, of returning to a time when we have to admit uh, many groups of people were much, much less happy and much, much less free.
1: Yeah. I I mean, there's a number of really interesting um, points here. Um, Some of the Integralists are kind of throwback medieval folks, but actually um, the Vermulians, the kind of American Integralists, follow his kind of advocacy for the modern administrative state and so there's a very real sense in which they're not trying to go backwards they're trying to create a kind of chinese-like uh administrative state um that would have kind of substantive moral ends and you know a number of them will say kind of nice things about china um because they they like what the chinese are doing in terms of their means even if they disagree with their their ends and so you know one of the surprising things about them as opposed to older generations of catholic traditionalists is they're not hearkening back Uh, To the medieval period, Um, they're saying, okay, there were some things that were good about that, but it's good. The modern state's good. The problem is it's run by a bunch of liberals, and that needs to change. So part of their strategy is to try to co-opt it. Um, They also think that history is going to do their work for them, as so many other radical groups do. So you know, think about it in the following way: Um, you look at the Soviet Union in 1980, you say, okay, there's some instability. Let's get some non-Marxists in in places of power. Uh Uh-oh, Soviet Union fell apart. But many of its bureaucracies are still there. Military is still there. Um, Let's let's you know now that the the Soviet ideology has collapsed. Let's kind of take the reins. And I think they think something very much like that is going to happen in the United States. There's a way in which liberalism and liberal elites are self undermining, and that they're going to lead to their own destruction. And so you know they give um, different arguments for this. Uh, One of which I find strange, but it's the one where they they outline their argument the most, is the thought like this. So they say, look, a lot of people think of liberals as, as, as decadent, um, mastered by their passions, but they're really highly motivated fanatics and ascetics um, in terms of their rigorous self-discipline. Um, and they're obsessed with liberation. And while they may have started with some reasonable liberations early on, um, they're so desperate for us and they're so desperate for liberations that they're going to pursue every conceivable one. They go from say ending slavery, good, um, to the kind of trans movement, uh, which which is which is bad, um, and so they just think, look, liberals are going to get more and more hysterical. They're going to push more and more crazy stuff till eventually the public's tired of it, and they rise up and put the new elite in power. If it sounds a little bit like Marxist Leninism, um, I don't think that's an accident.
0: That that doesn't sound dramatically different to me uh, from sort of standard issue conservatism, which is, uh, you know, we've had these fights in the past. They were, uh, in retrospect, righteous fights, slavery, uh, women, in many cases, gay rights, uh, but the fights that are occurring now, well, not so much. We need to stop the, this is where we stop. Mm -hmm. We've done all the liberating. We're done with liberation. We're going to stop right here.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the interest, the interesting thing here is that actually, um, They mock conservatives for this because they're really more like counter-revolutionaries. And they say, yeah, you know, what Reaganite conservatism does is it just baptizes whatever horror progressives were before 30 years before. And so they say, you know, look, we can't just rest with kind of ratifying at a time delay whatever the left does. We have to destroy and defeat them. And this is, I mean, something that, um, and I don't mean to say they're all fascists or whatever, but this is something that fascists often said against conservatives. They say, look, you're too weak to beat communism and, you know, we need people with the will to power, the the people who are willing to use the state to defeat the enemy. So, so and in, in, in I think there's a sense in which, you know, you're right. They do accept kind of some liberations, but they really are prepared uh, to, to resist a great many of them. They won't come out and say stuff like, I mean, they wouldn't go back to slavery. They, they're not taking the vote away from women uniquely. So there is a sense in which they're like, oh, those things were good. But then they say, you know, we could have got them without liberals.
0: Kevin Vallier's new book is All the Kingdoms of the World. We spoke last month. Subscribe to and rate the KDLA podcast wherever you please. And thank you for listening.